You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Hello, hello. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of The Village. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you for gathering with us. Uh, if you would, join me in prayer before we get started. Uh, Father, thank you for um, the generations that are gathered to hear, like we sang about earlier, generations of people singing your praises, and a glimpse of that, a sliver of that is here in this room today. So thanks for the men and the women, the young and the old uh, alike. Um, thank you for the prayers that have been prayed for this morning, uh, for this gathering, for me personally. Um, pray that you are going to do what you want to do with this gathering. Uh, this space and this time is yours. Uh, the scriptures are yours, uh, and we are yours. And so by your spirit, would you move in us? Uh, let us see the beauty of sometimes this messy, mixed-up thing called the church and your good wisdom in bringing together people that uh, might seem like they have chasms apart from one another in terms of experience uh, or, or interests or any of the things, and let us see your goodness in bringing together a church and building a church that will last forever, uh, built by the hands of Jesus. Um, So I pray that you would make us the village church here, a local church that would continue for a long time and learn to love to pass the torch of the gospel uh, to one another, generation to generation. Thanks for Jesus, uh, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, every Christmas Eve, I make shredded beef for dinner. Um, yeah, little cocked heads there. Like, why would you do that? Um, usually buy a, a big roast, throw it in the crock pot, uh, add some spices and some other stuff, let it, let it slow cook all day, and then you shred that baby up, right? And you make some sandwiches with it. Uh, shredded beef sandwiches, maybe not a traditional Christmas meal. Um, I've never had figgy pudding um, or fruitcake or any of those things, but uh, I'm pretty sure someone eats or used to eat, maybe still eats. I don't know those things for Christmas. They are, they're in Christmas songs. I know shredded beef has never been in a Christmas song before, uh, but for our family, uh, my mom's side of the family, that is our traditional Christmas Eve dinner. My grandpa would make it every single year, um, and it was just the best. Like the seasoning, uh, it was juicy. It was like finely shredded. It was fantastic. Like in my childhood memories, that is what Christmas Eve tastes like. Uh, shredded beef sandwiches. And since my grandma has passed on uh, and we host Christmas Eve at, at our place now, I've attempted to make my own version of his shredded beef sandwiches. And it is just, it's not the same. Uh, it is beef and it is shredded, um, but it is nothing like what I remember having as a kid. Uh, and part of that's probably because my, my grandpa was like way better in the kitchen than I ever will be. Uh, but the bigger part is probably that like no one has the recipe. Uh, there was nothing written down that explained what all he added and how much and for how long. And chances are there never was anything written down. It's probably just all up here in his head. And I don't think anybody except my grandma was maybe ever in the kitchen with him while he was cooking. And, and she has passed on as well. Uh, it was one of my family's best kept secrets, and it was kept so well that now nobody knows it. And so while uh, the memories of how good his shredded beef was, hey, those are sweet, and I'm glad that I have those, uh, that recipe, it, it did die with him. Uh, my kids won't get to taste it, which is a bummer, because that means they just have to put up whatever I cook up, all right, every Christmas Eve in the kitchen. That is a bummer for all of us. Uh, and, and all of us probably have put something somewhere, 
right? Maybe something uh, out of the way to keep it safe, thinking that no one will ever find it here, only to realize that about an hour later, you will never find it either, right? Because you have also forgotten uh, where you've put it. Uh, Some of us might have things in our minds that we want to say to someone, that we want to let someone in on, like when the time is right, when they're ready, or when when we're ready. Stuff that we want to pass on maybe to our kids or to younger folks that we know, just other people in our life things that they should be invited into so that they know what this looks like when it's their turn to do whatever. Or maybe we're not thinking about that at all. Like we're just assuming that we're going to be around forever. You will always be there to make the shredded beef. You might think that. And, and the reality is if we're not thinking about that stuff or if we're too slow to bring people in on what's important and, and to let them in on the secrets, let them cook in the kitchen with us, then we're actually not guarding those things that we treasure. We're, we're letting them die in some ways with us. And this is just as true in the church as it is everywhere else. Instead of investing in those who are next, we might actually be robbing them of the wisdom and experience and perspective that can sometimes only come with decades and decades and decades of the Lord's faithfulness in our own lives. When we're too precious about the things that are precious to us, we can get in our own way of actually preserving and passing on and advancing the gospel through the ministry of the local church. When we're too clingy and stingy with it, too slow with entrusting the younger in our midst with with the life and the leadership of the local church or other things in our lives. Not only after we're gone, right? But but while we're still around to coach and to encourage and to comfort them while they learn to cook in the kitchen. And that is easier said than done. It takes work and it takes trust, not just in the next generation, but in the God who extends and lives beyond every generation. The gospel's guarded best when it's entrusted to the next. That's our main idea for today. And we're going to begin uh, exploring that by looking at a point in the history of God's people that exemplifies kind of this healthy tension that can come up uh, when we do that. We're going to look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Uh, It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Read that with me, starting in verse 10. Uh, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, they sang, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of his house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. Our first point this morning is this, that a church that lasts forever will love to pass the torch. Uh, What's happening in the scene um, in Ezra, which is again in the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't shown up on the scene yet, uh, was that God's people, they had been been attacked. Uh, They had been conquered and kicked out of their own land. Jerusalem 
their big city, the city where the temple was that housed God, where God lived, it had all been destroyed, temple included. Uh, but after their conquerors were conquered themselves and, and power changed hands, the new king decided to let the Israelites go back home and start rebuilding. And they started uh, by rebuilding the temple. Now, they'd been away uh, from their home for about 70 years. Uh, Their exile had lasted two or three generations. And so when they got back and they started rebuilding, a few people still remembered what the city and the temple had been like before. They had been around in its glory days, before everything was destroyed. So they were returning to a home that they knew but was now vastly different. But most of them weren't. Most of them had been born and lived full lives outside of Jerusalem. They were born, they got married, they started careers in some other country. Jerusalem was their homeland, but it had never been their home before. And they'd seen other temples uh, for other gods, but they'd not seen the one that King Solomon built for Yahweh, their God, a long time ago. The, The temple of all temples built by the richest king of all kings for the God of all gods. And the laying of this new foundation, uh, which is what we're reading about here, spurs a a surprisingly mixed reaction from this intergenerational mix of God's people, old, young, and in between. On one hand, there's, there's music, and there's singing, trumpets, and cymbals, and songs filled the air for miles because people were so pumped, right, that a new temple was being built. God could be present with them. Again, they could worship the way they needed and the way that they wanted to, but mixed with the sounds of celebration were the sobs of others who were weeping, people who remembered what the first temple had been like. They could imagine the the outline of it, the the footprint on the ground where it once stood, all the times that maybe they had been there, all the times when when God had been there, all the good that had happened in that place, what it meant, like they could just tell, they could just tell just from this new foundation that was poured that this new one wasn't going to be the same. And it wouldn't be. Like it would be a scaled back version of Solomon's first temple. And it brought those who were old enough to remember the magnificence of that one to tears. Joyful singing and an ugly crying all rang out, all at once, mixed together, so anyone listening from miles away couldn't tell the difference. It's like if you ever heard a noise, parents probably hear this all the time, like, but you hear a noise from a group of people, kids, right? And you can't tell right away, is that excited screaming or is that angry yelling? right? Or is this like, are these these happy tears? Are these sad tears? It all runs together and just assume that someone will come and get you, uh, right? If something is actually wrong, it's kind of like that. Uh, But in this case, there, there are happy tears and there are sad tears divided by generations. And yet nothing in this moment actually is wrong. In fact, it's, it's pretty healthy. This story in Ezra, it illustrates the natural differences, the tensions that can occur in what's actually a healthy intergenerational group of God's people. There are those who are are younger and they're excited about all the future possibilities that can like come from something new and different, changing things up. And there are those who are older and they're sad because they're mourning the fact that what they knew and loved is now on its way out. Two different reactions, even though both temples, the one that had been destroyed, and the one that was being rebuilt were for the same God and were for the same family. And it would be so easy for either group to just point their fingers at one another and say, man, like you just don't get it. There's three ways to approach 
kind of this tension or this problem even today. One, like you can acknowledge the generational differences uh, and the gaps. So you just like separate the young and the old, right? You can acknowledge it, but just say, yeah, we're gonna do our own things now. You silo the generations, either into their own ministries, right? Their own uh, gatherings, their own churches. You know, you know, churches that have contemporary services and like traditional services or churches that are clearly just after kind of one age demographic. Either way, young or old, you, you keep them apart. You give them their, their own things, their own little wins, and you just try to appease the preferences of, each group. But in the end, like the best thing is that you just simply don't build unity or cohesion as a church within a church as a whole. And at worst, like you're just writing the story of how that church will one day maybe literally die off. We, we love the idea of, of having like targeted stuff, different ages and different groups or whatever here at the village. But there is a reason why we don't have our core groups and our core gatherings like based on a stage of, of life or an age, or some generational stuff, that the church is a spiritual family, and families are intergenerational. Right? We want folks to experience that in the church. We're not trying to arrange playdates, right? and it's impossible to build anything that's going to last by trying to make everyone happy all the time. That just doesn't pan out. So that's the first way. The second way to approach this is to acknowledge the generational gap, acknowledge the reality of having to hand stuff off, right, and hating every single second of it. Point the fingers, hate the process. I want to look at uh, Ecclesiastes for just a minute. Uh, it's chapter 2, 18 through 21. Uh, this little passage, this is written in the voice of Solomon, the king, who, funny enough, actually built the first temple. Here, he's, he's been around for a while. He's accomplished a lot. He's built a lot. He has bought a lot of things. Uh, and now he's wondering what comes next after he's gone. And this is what he says. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Sounds like a fun guy, right? So this was his approach. He, he just hated the whole thing, right? He, he hated the idea of someone getting the fruit of his labor, probably running it into the ground, turning his legacy into dust. He says the reality of this is vanity and evil. It's pointless and it's wicked. It's like a cruel joke, a, a divine punishment or injustice just being done to him. And look, there is some wisdom in this a little bit. Like it's true that that might happen to any of us. What we build might get run into the ground after we're gone. You know what? That did happen to Solomon. Like that was his story. The folks who came after him, he started at they started a civil war. They got themselves conquered, Jerusalem destroyed, and all the riches that Solomon had acquired uh, were carried out to fill the coffers of their enemies. It seems like there was maybe a failure on both sides. If that's the case, a failure to to pass the torch and maybe a failure to receive the torch rightly. And and to be clear, that's not because Solomon didn't care about what happened to his stuff. He, he clearly did. He cared a lot. His legacy mattered to him a lot. It was when he realized that his legacy in some way was just going to be out of his control. Like that's when he fell into despair. So like get this, even if things would have turned out well, 
like say that, that maybe his successors actually did a good job, he still would have hated having to pass the torch in the first place. This happens when, when churches go to war over the way things have always been done, right? And that happens on both sides, right? What, those who want to keep things the same and those who want to just change everything. Leaders who refuse to give up responsibility and authority until they literally can't anymore. People whose standards are way too high for folks to, to, to take on jobs and roles that even the most qualified folks like really do have to grow into in some way. These are all signs of someone who isn't trying to pass the torch but actually hates it, is afraid of it, and that will ultimately lead to a legacy like Solomon's, which is what we see in Ezra. God's people grieving all that's been lost and literally having to pick up the pieces and rebuild the mess that he set up. But we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. Even if we're not exactly sure how the future is going to play out, we don't have to hate this process, this reality. We can learn to love it. And that is the third approach. And that comes from realizing that the future was never in any of our hands in the first place. Loving to pass the torch is something that we've got to learn because I, I genuinely don't think it is ever something that feels natural, right? To, to give up and give away to, to someone new, right? Someone younger or less experienced. Different things often feel like the wrong things a lot, right? Even if we know that they are. And for the younger, to take responsibility for something that's been around for a long time, anyone who is like fit to do that should feel the weight of that. That's a big deal. There's a part of them that should feel rightly unprepared, right? And under-experienced for that. And yet, that can, that can be a delight. That can be a delight that is sweeter than anything. It's, it's been so fun watching some of like the original village kids grow up, some of them growing into to full members of the village church and serving and, and leading and doing stuff. Like That's been awesome to watch, encouraging to me, right? And also them giving me advice about stuff sometimes. Like It's sweet. Uh, Y'all know who you are. It's pretty dang cool. And I know that at some point, like those kids, they're going to have ideas, right? They're going to have plans. They're going to want to change things. And my hope is, man, I get to step aside and say, okay. And my hope is that I'm going to love every second of it, even though I'll probably be thinking about all the things that could go wrong in the meantime. And what frees me and what frees all of us up to do that is the fact that the next generation is not, in fact, the future of the church. Young folks, hear me. You are, you are not the future of the church. If you're in Christ, you are the church today. That's significant. That matters. Like you don't start having value the moment that you turn 18 or become a, a member or start leading something. You simply are as much a part of God's church as any adult is right now. And we do want you to become members. That's one of our hopes. Uh, if you're in the bridge, seventh through 12th graders, like we want you to hang in here with us on Sunday mornings and become members, find a group, become part of the normal rhythms of the life of the local church. So you can hang out with us old people right throughout the week. That's great. But know that the future of the church doesn't rest on your shoulders. It rests on Jesus' shoulders. To the seasoned saints in the room, so I'll refer to you as the old people uh, who have been around for a long time, and I think I'm somewhere in between there. To the seasoned saints in the room, you're not entrusting the future of the church into some person who will come after you, and who knows whether they'll be wise or a fool. That is not the position you find yourself in. First of all, like the people in this room, you know them. 
Or you could get to know them and you can have a hand in actually making them wise. You should do that. And younger folks, like you should seek that out. But on top of that, there's already a master of all and his name is Jesus. And unless you think that like you got to this point all by yourself up to now, like that he's, he's carried you this far, right? He has gotten you to this point and he's not gonna stop carrying his people once you step down or once you breathe your last. You get to entrust the future into that master's hands, the good master, the wisest master who has seen it all. God is not old and he is not young. I know it's easy to think of God as an old gray bearded guy or uh, simply just, you just see Jesus as being this eternal 33-year-old carpenter who's like in the prime of his life, but he's, he's simply eternal. God is eternal. You don't worship a God who favors or relates to one generation more than the other. He has seen every generation come and go. Whatever worries you might have about this generation, there is nothing new under the sun that God cannot carry them through. He's not going anywhere. And if he was, he probably would have done it a long time ago, before cell phones were invented. And if we ever want to say that he did go somewhere because of all that, we can say that he went to the cross. He moved closer towards us, even closer towards us. He became like us. Jesus lived and he died for us to pay for our sins, to defeat the vanity of death to conquer the evil of our days and to preserve his promise to his people that we would live and last forever with him in spite of our lack of wisdom. His love endures forever towards us, his people. And that's the song that the builders were singing. That was the song, right? As they were, as they were building the temple, laying the foundation, it wasn't about how great their previous generations were or how, how promising the next one was looking. Their song of praise, their hope was an eternal God that despite our foolishness and our best laid plans and our worst blunders, he doesn't go anywhere. But that's the hope that Solomon didn't have. This was Solomon's downfall. And despite all of his wisdom, in all of his riches, he turned his back on God, not all at once. It wasn't a sudden shift, but over years, he gave his heart to preferences, to his stuff, to the way things were, to women. And slowly, bit by bit, when he was faced with his mortality, he looked around and he found suddenly no hope, only despair. He hated the idea of passing the church not because he didn't trust God with his future, but because he hadn't trusted God with all of his todays. Which means that passing the, chort, the torch starts today. That process, it starts right now. You learn to love it today. Three quick questions for you. Like one, who are you trusting today? Who are you trusting with your todays and your tomorrows? And whose hands are you placing your life and your hope for any kind of a legacy. Number two, how are you passing the torch? How are you passing the torch or receiving the torch? Are you putting yourself in places around men and women from a different generation where that can happen? Or is your life entirely siloed in some way? And three, do you view other generations in the church as a gift? 
not pointing fingers at like how they did things or how they want to do things. Younger folks, is it okay with you that, that our more seasoned saints might not be as excited about the new stuff sometimes? Can you make time and room to honor them and the tears that they might shed because they've seen God work through decades of their life in certain ways? Ugly crying, that might be out of love for God and his work, not because they're stuck in their ways. And more seasoned saints, do you trust the Lord enough to be excited with the younger among us about things that, that maybe they're old news to you or maybe they're different from the way that you've done them, but, but do you trust the Lord to keep doing the same old work? And will you join them eventually in, in joyfully singing new songs about the same steadfast God? Those are the questions that we get to ask ourselves and the healthy tension that exists when a group of God's people gather together intergenerationally. I want to take a look at a couple of other passages. These are from uh, Paul to Timothy. The first one is this. It's in 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 14. This is what Paul writes to a young Timothy. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Point two this morning is this, that a church that lasts forever will never leave its roots. Uh, my brother-in-law just moved into uh, a new house a few weeks ago and we, we brought them a housewarming gift uh, last weekend and their gift was uh, my mother-in-law's Christmas cookie recipe. Um, ever since she passed away, which is almost 10 years ago now, her, her Christmas cookie recipe was in the sole possession of Kelly. Uh, my wife, and, it, and it's on an index card. It's handwritten, uh, notes and scribbles on it from years of tweaking uh, and all that stuff. And it's a sweet thing, but until last weekend, only one human was privy to its secrets. Only, could, only Kelly can make, make the stuff. But now, now that is no longer true. Right? Now there are two people who can make them. Right? And unlike my shredded beef, they will taste exactly just the same as when their mom made them because it's literally the same recipe. It's laminated, it's unchangeable, it simply is what it is. It's been perfected and it's delicious. That recipe will be the same recipe for all of time. It will always be just as good as it was the year before, all the way into eternity. In this passage, Paul, who is an apostle, a leader in the early church, he's writing 
a letter to a, a younger guy named Timothy. He's a pastor uh, that he clearly has a sweet relationship with. It's like a spiritual father and son thing. And he's, he's going out of his way here to anchor Timothy's faith in something bigger than what's happening around him, bigger than just some hype moment in history. The gospel isn't a trend. It is the culmination and the, co- the continuation of something ancient, that countless people before him, even his own mom and his own grandma, they were a part of it. And so there is a way of living, a way of going about things, a way of understanding God and the world that Timothy has inherited, that Paul himself received before writing and, and preaching anything. Deposits made in both men that can be traced ultimately all the way back to God himself who revealed truth It was passed down, it was laminated, unchangeable in Scripture and in the manifestation of Jesus. And Paul's telling Timothy, guard that deposit. Hang on to that with your dear life. It doesn't get better than this. God's hand is all over this thing. So guard the faith that God has given you by keeping yourself rooted in all the things that up until now have been more than good enough. Right? Because they're just as good now, and they always will be. And so a few observations from this passage. First, old truths, young folks, they are your roots. Young folks, I want you to love the fact that you're a part of something old. Right? I know that we're not in a traditional church building, right? There's no windows, let alone stained glass windows anywhere. There's no old paintings anywhere, uh, no steeple, any of that stuff at all. Right? We don't recite creeds or have anything like that, but, but you're part of something that is legitimately ancient. Like You don't have to find your purpose. You don't have to make up a meaning. Like, like you write a story, and then the story tells you what it means. Or, or you make a sandwich, right? And the sandwich tells you why it exists. You don't have to do that. The purpose and grace that saved you and gave you a holy calling Like, God is the one who gave you that before the ages even began. Whatever that means. That's a long time ago. And Paul says there's a pattern to our faith that's passed on. It may not take the exact same shape from generation to generation, right? That can look different across time. You won't find many coffee bars, probably in churches 100 years ago. It's probably not a thing. Dress, language, all that stuff. But it's the same tree. It's the same fruit. It's the same faith and love in Jesus, the same roots, the same deposit. History doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so you should understand, like, and, and maybe be relieved that your goal, your job, is not to reinvent the Christian wheel, right? You get to receive it. Don't reinvent the church. Don't reinvent doctrine <laughs> or reinvent, like, the fundamentals of the faith. That, that doesn't mean don't ask questions, all right? Like, you know, that. don't be curious. That's not what we're saying. Like, read, learn, ask. There, there probably are things that you have heard or learned or been taught that are funky. You get to square yourself with the scriptures, all right? But if you find yourself like way off base from what maybe most of the church has believed for most of Christian history, there's a small chance that you might be the one that needs to like correct their course a little bit. God's probably not uprooting thousands of years of theological roots because you listened to a podcast or you Googled a Hebrew word, okay? It's probably true. We always get to be open to correction, Right? and changing our mind, including those of us who have been around. We should, we should be modeling that, seasoned saints. <laughs> like, when was the last time that we let the Lord change our mind about something? Right? That's part of repentance. 
And church history is not our rule of faith. That is the scriptures. And yet our old roots are significant. In fact, one of the reasons that that in this letter, Paul says he's so confident in Timothy's faith is that he is following in his ancestors' footsteps. Staying true to your roots is one way of guarding the good deposit that you've been given. The bottom line is this, that, that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Help the old one gain some traction, right? Because the old stuff is the stuff that lasts. It's old for a reason. And that's because, this is the second thing, old truths bring life. Paul tells young Timothy to fan and to flame his gift. The CSB says rekindle. I love that. But what's interesting is why Paul encourages him to do that. It's because his family's old faith is dwelling in him. In other words, go to work for Jesus because God's old roots are alive and well, and they are not done bearing fruit. Like his family trees, not done growing. God's still at work. The good news of Jesus, the same one that, that spread throughout the Near East, traveled across seasons and seas, planted a million churches on Millville Avenue, right? That's still the only thing after all this time that brings to light the end of death, the beginning of life, immortality, and it's not done doing work. And what's wild is that God would choose to build a church that lasts forever with people who only get a good 80, 90 years max right on this side of eternity. That is wild to think about. God is growing an eternal church one blink of an eye at a time. Paul was a blink. Timothy was a blink. We are all mid-blink right now. And every generation's job, including yours, is to not reinvent new truths, but to figure out what it looks like to faithfully express the timeless truths of the gospel in a timely way. Make it make sense to the people around you. And if you're up for that, it will actually push you deeper into your dependence and understanding of the Lord. It will bring you more life. But that doesn't happen when we choose to fan every other flame, right? Except what God's given us. You might have like crystal clear theology. You might be super charismatic. Maybe you can hype people up. Maybe you can calm people down. You can answer all the questions. But if what you encourage people with, like if what you point them to for life, if that stops at at therapy or self-care or you can do it, it's like sending good vibes to a plant that's dying on the vine. It is nice, right? But it will only go so far. And hear me, take care of yourself, all right? Rest, that is a command of the Lord. For goodness sake, go to therapy, right? You probably need it, right? We should do those things. Pursue health in all the ways. Those are good, and the Lord can use those things to help, but he doesn't just want to, people to be helped. He wants people to live. He wants them to have life. Jesus is their life, and he is your life. And if you believe that the gospel's been that throughout history, if you believe the gospel is that for you, then let that be the hope that you have for the work that God's not yet done doing. Guard the deposit in you by fanning the flame of what the Lord gave. That is how you will know its worth. And lastly is this, old truths come at a cost. It's a big shocker, uh, but, but historic Christian theology won't always make you the most popular guy in the room, right? Uh, in this room, it's probably fine, but maybe not at work, <laughs> Maybe not at at school, in the neighborhood, even for some of us at home with family and friends. Paul is in prison 
for the things that he believed. And he told Timothy, hey, don't be ashamed of what Jesus did or what I have said and what I have done just because I've been locked up for it. In fact, he tells Timothy to be ready to share in that suffering. To those of us who are more seasoned saints, how are we teaching the younger folks in the room to endure rejection? To deal with shame or ridicule, to be misunderstood or accused of things that aren't true because we're already showing them how to do that in the way that we react to the world around us on social media, right? In group gatherings, anytime things come up, the way that we react to things, if, if we respond to unfavorable election results or news that we don't like or opinions that we don't agree with, what folks say about those Christians, right? If we react to that in a way that doesn't come from a spirit of power or love or self-control, but actually comes from fear, then we might actually be encouraging folks to ditch their roots based on our fruit. Because if it's true that God's not given us a spirit of fear and that the future is in Jesus' hands, and that the gospel is enough to save and is worth suffering for than just spending our time bashing ideological opponents or calling people stupid or getting into arguments because somebody started it first, right? Stirring up fear. It's asking the younger generation to wonder if we're really Christians at all and therefore to wonder if the things we believe really are too. We can't be surprised by that if we treat the deposit that's God, that God has given us as fragile or as if its value goes up and down like the stock market. Younger folks, here's your challenge. Don't be ashamed of the words of Jesus or of Paul because, because your uncle, right, who goes to church sometimes, sometimes says racist things, all right? Like, I'm not saying that that's not frustrating or, or confusing. I'm just saying that God's not asking you to defend Uncle Daryl's Facebook posts, okay? He's not asking you to do that. God is asking you to square your life up and your beliefs up with what he said was true. Not Uncle Daryl, right? And I'm sorry if your name's Dale and you're an uncle, right? I just picked that name out of nowhere. I'm not thinking of anyone in, in particular. He's not asking you to square your life or beliefs up with him, but with the Lord, right? It might cost you friendships or family members, and not necessarily because God's asking you to close the door on those relationships, but because they would be willing to close the door on you if you disagree with them. And that is not an easy decision. You might rather be thrown in prison than have to decide or pick between a loved one and the Lord. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. That is hard. That's real life. Christian orthodoxy hasn't really changed for thousands of years. And that might be because we're all brainless idiots, who, who can't think for ourselves, have never had an open mind in our entire lives, or maybe, maybe it's because there is an incredibly robust history of faithful men and women who have painstakingly labored over the hard questions that life brings our way. And you weren't meant to figure that out in 15 years or 25 years, and certainly not by yourself, scrolling on a smartphone, writing your own statements of faith on your Instagram feed. Not that we know everything, but like we, we want you to talk with us about those things. We know you. We know the Lord. We can help bring some texture to the way the gospel lands in your real life. You are meant to do that with the local church face-to-face -face with an open Bible in front of us, right? We want to embody what that looks like, that truth, that grace, that goodness of the Lord that lasts forever, his love that endures for all of time towards his people. We want to embody that for you in the way that you might need right now with things that you're dealing with, issues and situations 
and relationships that are so personal and that we might already be aware of. Let us walk with you in those things. The truths of scripture are hard, but they are not shameful. They remove the shame that the world would have you carry because at the end of the day, the words aren't yours. They're God's. Any shame that you receive, you don't keep that. It was taken by Jesus. The truth that sounds crazy to people today has been and always will be true whether or not the world believes it. Last forever. Be a part of a church that lasts forever and guard the deposit that lasts forever by staying close to your roots. If you do, you will grow. And that's what I want to look at with our last passage this morning is what it looks like when that growth happens. If you will turn uh, 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 5, 2 is what uh, Kel read for us earlier today. Paul writes this to Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Our last point this morning is this, that a church that lasts forever is always growing up. Uh, what if I told you that 20-year-olds were supervising the building of the new temple in Ezra? Not, not doing the work, not doing the work. They were actually in charge, overseeing the work that was being done. That's what Ezra said, just a couple of verses before we read at the beginning of our morning together. And some of you guys, Ben Brashear or Rick Meyer, whoever's out there that builds stuff, they're like, well, that's why the older folks were crying, right? Because the people who are barely not teenagers anymore probably goofed it up. Like they probably did it all wrong. But look, anyone 20 and older, they were put in charge. The younger carrying weight with the older, leading with the older. And the work seemed less impressive, than what the older folks remembered. Like whenever I let my kids help decorate the Christmas tree, like I can do it all by myself, right? It looks great when I do it by myself. I know exactly what I'm doing. I have a system to it. But as I've been letting our kids help, not only is it more work, but it too seems less impressive than what I had envisioned when it comes to fruition. Uh, the ornaments are a little bottom heavy, right? That's just the way that that sort of works. But then I remember they're growing. They're growing. They're getting bigger. They're doing an awesome job with what they can do. And now at 12, Mabel can probably reach pretty close to the top at this point. But she learned to hang those ornaments when she was four and five and six. And one day, I'm going to get to sit back. They're going to trim the tree from top to bottom. And I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it. And one day, 600 years after the foundation was poured of this temple, and long after any of those builders had died, Jesus would set foot in that less impressive, modest temple that they were building. They were laying the foundation for where God in the flesh would once again walk among his people, and they didn't know it. To my seasoned saints, the future is in Jesus' hands, but some of his best work is happening in the younger people around you who are still learning to hang ornaments 
in their life, right? To, to pour concrete, who have much to learn like we all do and who need you to see them and to treat them and to invite them into carrying weight and to leading alongside of you, even if it feels like more work and it might yield to less impressive results. They aren't the future of the church. They are the church. See them as fellow saints in whom God dwells. That's the picture that we get from Paul. Once again, writing to, to Timothy, a young dude. And young folks, I want you to see what he's calling Timothy to, what it actually means to be young in the church. I want you to see this. This is how we're gonna close out today. To get this picture, first, set the pace in faithfulness. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Doesn't mean clapping back at the boomers, right? When they pick on you. That is not what that means, all right? Don't do that, right? It means don't let yourself or others use age as an excuse for any immaturity. People always talk about the teenage years as if like kids turn into werewolves and stuff. And look, I know there's a lot of stuff cooking in here, right? Stuff happens, I understand. But I also know that people rise or coast into the expectations that we have for them. Right? And that's not harsh. That's not some kind of legalism or whatever. That's dignifying to believe that young men and young women filled with the Holy Spirit can actually bear fruit and grow and be a blessing to the people around them in their teenage years and that the rest of us might actually be spurred on by them. Number two, let God's word do the talking. Read your Bibles. <laughs> young folks, read your Bibles. Don't just let us read them for you or to you right? Read them on your own, right? Read them yourselves. If you don't have one, we would love to give you one. If you don't like the one you've got, we would love to give you one, all right? We want you to have a Bible. We'll, we'll get you one. Let the wisdom that you share, the truth that you declare and build your life on, the encouragement that you offer, let that be rooted in the word, not to show off how much you know, all right? You don't have to quote Bible verses and stuff all the time, but like to show off how good and wise and loving the Lord is, right? Let God's word do the talking. Thirdly, Use their gifts. Use your gifts for the church. If the Lord's given you a gift, you get to use it for the good of the church. And you don't have to wait until there's some like magic age to start serving. Now, like that doesn't mean that you get a, a, to stake a spot out on the stage, right? Or say, okay, I'm leading this thing now. I'm gonna start something brand new, like or declare you're now the leader of, of something. Like God gave gifts for the, for the building up of his church. So using your gifts probably starts with asking, hey, would this be helpful? Or what could I do to, to help out here? Not when do I start, right? Where's my chair? And if you're not sure how you're gifted, then you get to ask the Lord for clarity. Ask others for clarity. What do you see in me? And just get involved somewhere. Join a team, right? Go to Guatemala, right? The, the church isn't a talent show, but it is a place where everyone, no matter the age, gets to contribute. Next, grow up in front of the church. It's what this looks like for you young folks. Like just because you have a gift or are good at something, it doesn't mean that you're automatically perfect at it, All right? In fact, the opposite is probably true. Every gift comes with the need to learn and to practice and to probably mess up a bunch publicly, right? Find somebody who might be good at or gifted in a similar way, like as you, so that you might uh, be helped a little further along in what you want to grow in. Ask them to help you grow. And you don't have to wait until you have mastered something before you start using it. Right? And you don't have to wait until you've mastered being a Christian before you start showing up or letting yourself be seen in the church. That's not a thing. No one masters being a Christian. Like, don't be afraid of making mistakes or letting people in the church know that you did something dumb. We have all sinned, right? We can all look back and see how immature and unwise or how much we didn't know, right? Let the church see your progress, which means being okay with us not seeing you at your best. 
falling flat on your face. And then let us meet you with grace and truth and wisdom, right? That is a sign of trust and humility for the person that's doing the growing. And it's also a sign of a church that's filled with grace and cares more about helping you grow up in Christ than performing in front of a church. Next, keep a close watch on yourself. This can show up in a lot of ways. The most secure, confident, humble people I know are much more concerned with their own words and their own actions and their own motivations than anyone else's. Not because they're pretentious or care more about themselves, but because they care about loving people well and representing Jesus well. You don't rise or fall on the righteousness of anyone else other than Jesus. So keep your eyes fixed on him. Be slow to give hot takes on things, right? Ask lots of questions. Be in community on a regular basis. Be seen, be known, have people in your life who know you and can tell when something's up and people that you will listen to when they actually have something to say to you, right? That's a key part. Join a group, be a part of the bridge, ways to do that. And lastly, honor the family that God gave you. We get to treat one another as a spiritual family. When we see folks who are older, younger, whatever, like they're not just that guy that doesn't like loud music, right? Or that girl that always plays her music loud. Right? We're not annoyances, obstacles, things to be avoided or persuaded or worked around in some way. No pointing fingers and again, assuming that, man, they just don't get it. Honor one another as family. We're all still growing up. I tell my kids all the time that I'm, I'm like, I'm just growing up with you. I'm growing up with them. You've never been a seventh grader before. I've never raised a seventh grader before, right? We're all learning here, all right? Some of you have never passed a torch in your life, right? And some of you have never been handed a torch to receive. And yet, in his wisdom, not in his foolishness, but in his wisdom, God has decided to build a church that lasts with generations that don't. God did that in his goodness. In the midst of the tension that creates and the ugly crying and the joyful singing that gets mixed, we actually get a glimpse of what it looks like when his steadfast love really does endure forever. Not just towards us from above, but actually through us towards the people sitting in these seats, from the old to the young and from the young to the old. Part of honoring the family that God has given us, not the one that we pictured in our heads, not the one that we imagine in our minds, not the ones where everything's separate, just the way that we like it, but the one that he's given us, part of that is trusting them. Younger folks, trust that the older has seen God's wisdom and goodness in ways that you simply haven't yet. The Lord himself has something to teach you through them, even if the times look different. Right? The old truths are still the same. And to the seasoned saints, part of entrusting the future of the church to the Lord is trusting the people he's made part of his church today. While God will preserve his people, we get to decide if that happens through the next generation having to pick up the pieces that we have let fall to the ground or if that happens through probably a, a clumsy, awkward, unnatural, but God-honoring passing of the torch. The gospel is guarded best when we entrust it to the next. Man, you guys can come on up. Uh, one of the ways that we embody every single week the fact that we are all still growing up together, young and old, is by coming up to the table and partaking in this old thing that we call communion. Jesus commanded us to take and eat and drink and remember this old truth. 
that it's by the blood of Jesus that he shed and by the body of Jesus that was broken, which is represented in the juice and the bread that's up here, that we have peace with God, that we have eternal life, that death is beaten, that life begins and immortality, that gets to be ours. And so we get to do, young, old alike, if you're a believer in Jesus, you get to reflect on some of the questions that'll be up on the screen. You can pray, you can sing along. There'll be some folks back there who would love to pray with you. I'll be back along that wall, would love to pray with you as well. But if you're a believer here this morning, we would encourage you to sift your heart. What is the spirit maybe spurring you towards? If you need to confess, repent, you need to seek comfort or reconcile with someone, do that. And then come up and rejoice, right? Joyful singing and taking of communion. So just ask as the band uh, plays and continues us in our response time this morning that you would sit with the Lord and let him lead you in whatever response seems fitting.